Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Boom. The host, yep. is back. the host is back in the building and the co-host is not direct connected, for those out there who know what that means. Well, I'm actually not in the building. I'm at a different location today, so um, if you hear any dog sounds in the background, that lets you know where I'm at. <laughs> we'll know what that means. Yeah, well, we uh, we start the show uh, in a manner other than maybe we would like to, as we have already had one uh, technical hiccup, which has prevented the co-host from direct connecting right into the mainframe. But, hey, the way things have been going, maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that anymore. We've just been on a, uh, I mean... Like we said before, we we had a great run. You know, there was some hiccups, like maybe seven or eight months after we started. They got them ironed out, and then we had like this almost 18-month to two-year run where it just worked smoothly. And then out of nowhere, just, you know, July July 2017, if my memory serves me, just started back up. Uh, let, me, uh, let me ask, are there... Uh... Are there upgrades to the current package that we subscribe to within this platform? Funny you should ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> because once a week I get an email from Blog Talk uh, advertising their new upgraded uh, platform. And yeah, they call well, that, the, I mean, that actually wait, wait, you wait a second, lead me. Tell you. Almost as if an underhand pitcher to a power hitter uh, lead me right to the point I was going to make that uh, maybe there are things behind the scenes that we're not privy to that are pushing the issue of the upgrade, if you will. Um, grade that they keep talking about is really not an upgrade, in my opinion, to what will help us because it ha- it speaks to nothing about in terms of you know their 
you know, their back-end systems. Like right, putting us yeah, on, but see, that's kind of the, the a, unspoken a deal right here, you know what I yeah, mean? Like, uh, they're not a higher-level system. <laughs> yeah, I know, but, you know, who knows? Who knows what really is going on on the back-end there? I mean, there might be somebody back there that, look, we gave these cheapskates a nine-month run, clean, free of problems. It's about time. Uh, they pony up and hit the upgrade, or they're going to start experiencing things they might not want to. Well, I'm not getting the medium package because there's nothing in it for us. Um, I'm, I'm keep waiting for the email to say we have an improved network connection. When it says that, then I'll look into it. Mm, there you go. There you go. Well, that takes care of that. We do have a, a little. Uh... <laughs> Combine, the Combine is upon us. Uh, we've already had one tragic injury to an MCO. Uh, I will, I will leave the um, the person's identity um, confidential for the sake for the sake of this show. But let's just say there's a there's a considerable drop off when an MCO injury takes place, and and that might just do that individual in. I uh, did want to ask you, however, uh, big talk about the Jets pursuing Kirk Cousins. Your thoughts? Um, well, they got the money. Um, I don't know. It doesn't, you know, <laughs> it doesn't excite me. It doesn't depress me. Um, it's like, we'll wait and see. You know, he's... He's what we would call in foot parlance a tease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very true. Yep. So Very we'll true. See. All right. But they're not. They're not. They're not the only team with a lot of money to spend. Yeah, no, they're they're uh, a good. I think I want to say at least like five or six teams that are well over like fifty, sixty million under the cap. With uh, with a ton of spending room and obviously quarterback premium position, uh, every team every team who doesn't doesn't have one needs one. So. Yep. And until you get one, you're just swimming in the wind. That's that's, that's exactly right. That is exactly right. Um, yeah, that was the big thing. I wanted to ask you the all the links being made to the Jets and Kirk Cousins, but I've got. I've got nothing nothing outside of that other than uh, kind of a feel-good story, which might lead us into our topic today. Uh, you've heard about the linebacker who is at the Combine and has one hand, I believe is the story. And uh, he put up, I think, 30-plus reps on the bench, and he's been turning heads uh, at the Combine. So that should be an interesting story, but... Um, they kind of featured him a little bit in an ESPN segment, and he had talked about not giving up, and he had also talked about uh, role models in his life that led him to uh, continuing to pursue his dreams. So uh, interesting lead into the topic today, but I, I didn't know if you had heard of him or not, but he uh, 
appears to be appears to be doing pretty well for himself. Well, not only that, he he won the uh, Jason Witten Man of the Year or College okay. Athlete College Athlete of the Year. Um, Shaquem Griffin is his name. That's and right. Yep, one arm, but we'll see. He, you know, the projections are that he may he's like a, you know, the high uh, the highest he may go is fifth round, but projection sixth seventh round, project to be a special specialty type player and special team type player. Yeah. But you never know. Someone who's made it this far with one arm and everyone is kind of saying that he's going to be limited at the professional level and they surprise people. That's right. So, as That's long right. as they get I'm the opportunity. Because it's a feel-good story for sure. Yep. As long as they get the opportunity, they surprise people. So... By the way, I do have a noisy chair, so I hope people can't hear it. But that's just my resistance to buying a new chair. Mm-hmm. So it makes noise when I when I move or lean on it. So I apologize if, if folks can hear it. In any event, I'm ready to go to the topic. I don't have any other news. I don't have any. Uh, we did some sports. Um, I don't think there's anything for us to recap. Um, from our last show, which was about a month ago. <clears throat> I agree. I agree. I think we can we can dive right into it. And before before we do that, let's just you know apologize to our our listeners that we're we kind of been averaging like one show a month. Um, we're damn busy. This this um new thing that California has going on. So we're we're about one year in now. February made our one-year anniversary. Right. It's a lot of work. Even when yeah, it popping, sure is. Uh, mm-hmm. And obviously, we don't. <clears throat> excuse me. Want to bore the viewers, but do you see? Uh, so we can share or provide a little bit of insight. Is the majority of that added work um, programmatic in nature or political in nature? Where Where do you see the majority of that happening? It's a combination thereof. Okay. There's more. There's always more and more stuff coming out. You know, they're just, just putting more and more stuff administratively onto the providers, and you know, there's always like a uh, a line where if you push over that line in terms of the amount of administrative stuff you put onto a provider they move from being able to effectively provide services to basically becoming an administrative arm. True. Okay. Yep. Okay. And we're like pretty close to that, you know, that, that mark in terms of, you know, how much of our time is going to be occupied providing services versus uh, providing data. Data is not treatment. Data is just information for other people to use for whatever reasons they want to use it. But it's not treatment to us. Now, it is a necessary, uh, I won't call it evil, but it's a necessary thing. Um, but sometimes, you know, the powers that be don't get, have an understanding of, you know, how much is too much and how, how much becomes, you know, self-defeating. Can't have both. You can't have it both ways. 
Yeah, yeah, the priority priority has to go one or the other. Right. And whichever one, by the way, um, both can't be optimum. Both cannot be provided, you know, in a top-tier fashion. So if you're providing a lot of data and spending a lot of administrative time putting information into a database, you know, what what time are your clinicians spending doing actual direct face-to-face work with people? And this is the this is what you sign on for when you take federal money. They're, yeah. they're, the, the, if both the fed, feds and the state, they're like hogs for data, administrative data. So we push back as much as we can until you hear those dreadful words. It's required by law. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so, uh, needless to say, we will continue to provide content on our end from the radio show version uh, when we can, but we uh, can't necessarily continue to provide, at least at this moment, the continuous stream of content that we have been putting out uh, due to other responsibilities and pressing issues. Well stated. We certainly don't want to find ourselves in the position where we're racing to, you know, any possible location where we could, you know, hook up and 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 do a show. Uh, as, and we got another thing, you know, we'll let our audience know. <clears throat> our East Coast brethren already know about this. They already deal with this stuff. But the traffic around here has just gone off the chain. Oh, yeah. Oh, in a major way. And just so people have an understanding, our sites are within six miles of each other. So they're only 15, 20 minutes tops away in just normal driving, if not, you know, sooner distance. Now, my office is at the adult facility, and I live only 2.5, well, you know, the distance between my office and where I live, right? Absolutely, and we'll, we'll minor correction for the record, and <laughs> I understand why you did it out of force of habit, uh, but your office is not at the adult facility, since we're all adult facilities now. Uh, <laughs> your office is at the residential facility, or the residential Correct. branch. <laughs> Correct. It'll probably take a few years to get out of saying that. Um, <laughs> uh, totally, uh, totally understood. It's about 2.5 miles away, tops three miles. Would you agree? Yeah, and, and also uh, we're not talking about traffic lights and lefts and rights. We're talking like a direct shot a direct down straight one road. road. Right. right, exactly. <laughs> and it used to just take me when I would you know, leave my office maybe 10, 15 minutes. Now they can take 30, 45 minutes on average. Mm-hmm. To go 2.5 or 3 miles. And we used to think nothing of bouncing from the residential facility to the, uh, the main site in Redwood City. Only, you know, 5, 6 miles away. 10, 15 minutes, depending on the time of day. 20 minutes tops. Now, that might take you 45 minutes. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. And uh, 
we'll throw it out there too for the shifts that some of the uh, frontline staff work. Um, people used to love the two to ten shift because you were basically missing traffic both ways. And I had two to ten staff tell me, uh, you know, leaving the facility at ten oh five, and there's actually traffic on the one oh one. So, yeah, traffic. Traffic is a real thing. Although, like you said, I'm sure with your folks over in New York, we are uh, we are preaching to the choir there, as the saying goes. We're complaining to the choir. Or complaining to the choir, yeah. <laughs> Role models. Role models, I've had a few. <laughs> so, the importance of good role models in recovery. Or what happens if you get a bad role model. Or choose to follow bad role models, I should say. Correction. So, Mr. Producer, tell us a little bit about, you know, when you, you know, initiated your treatment experience, at what point did you kind of decide to, at what point did you choose uh, a role model or plural role models? And and when I say at what point, I mean like in, 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 in a time span from when you arrived. And what process did you use to decide that, okay, I'm going to use this person or that person or that person or a combination thereof as my role models or role models plural? Oh, boy. So uh, I guess to answer that accurately, uh, the the correlation or the time frame, um, you know, is very much around the same time that I decided I was going to take treatment seriously, period, right? So there was a, there was a good amount of time um, spent in the beginning, the first trimester, if you will, uh, and mind you, I guess maybe a little context for the audience. I was 17 years old when coming into the program, so um, maturity was completely absent from the picture. Uh, I know many of our adults, um, you know, who come in a little older, already have at least some idea in their mind that they're willing to get help or want to get help or at the very least need help, whether they want it is another question. Uh, But at 17, no one can tell you anything. So um, just to to give a little context, we'll say the first trimester of of my experience was spent um, being quite resistant uh, to anybody who had anything to say to me that I, uh, you know, that I ought to make a change or consider it or uh, was maybe doing things I shouldn't have been doing. So as long as I stayed in that mind frame, um, there, there was no role model in the picture because there, I was not seeking one. Uh, and that said, I want to say maybe right around the three-month mark when my mind started to change, um, I started to maybe think about things or feel thing, feel a certain way about things differently than I did upon entering and I guess it was around that time that, uh, you know, you might start to look for, even if you're not verbalizing it or, or sharing this idea with people, but start to look for role models, people that just kind of, I want to say it was kind of like an organic process for me, right? So 
I didn't have it in my front of my conscious mind that I want a role model or need a role model. Um, but you just start to observe people a little differently, uh, whether that be some of the phase fours who used to come back and had already kind of walked the road that you're currently walking, um, or some of the staff, which um, at that time uh, was predominantly uh, graduate-level staff, graduates of the program, um, and as a result were closer to me in age um, than you might otherwise see in a different setting. Um, but just kind of, you know, you observe what people are really about. Are there people here who are just talking and, and aren't really about what they're saying or they're here to, you know, collect a paycheck or, um, you know, are there some people here who, who walk the walk as well? Um, and so I guess right around the three-month time was when I started to observe or take in people's information differently. Uh, and then that out of that process organically kind of popped up. Uh, people that maybe I looked up to or uh, people that I cared to mimic or wanted to mimic, wanted to walk in their shoes, wanted to get uh, where they had gotten uh, via the same, you know, the same program and the same road. Um, and so that's kind of, that's how the, the time frame and the process worked for me. When you spoke about it kind of being an organic thing, I would say that's usually how it occurs um, because we, we pretty much don't go up to people and, you know, make a pronouncement, uh, sign a contract with them and say, you know, yeah, I'm signing you up to be my role model. Right, and, right. And, yeah. and when I made the comment organic, the example uh, that I wanted to give to the audience that came to my mind was, uh, organic in that different than the way it looks when you're in AA or NA and you're seeking or providing sponsorship, right? Right, where that's kind of a um, that is kind of an an item that is spoken about and sold. Like if you're a sponsor, you're going to tell potential sponsees they need a sponsor, and if you're a sponsee, you're going to go up to people and ask about sponsorship, right? So even though uh, a sponsee may meet a sponsor in what could be defined as an organic way. That is still kind of a part of the process of that program, and it is pushed, uh, whereas, you know, role model and treatment, kind of like maybe a role model in life, is something that just happens. Exactly. So let me just read a little something. <clears throat> it speaks to what we're talking about. Uh, two things. So the need for role models in recovery. So humans tend to look to other people for clues about how best to navigate life. This means that people can learn without the need to experience everything for themselves. If other people make a mistake, it is possible to learn from this. There is no need to repeat the mistake. If people are successful at something, then it makes sense to try to copy their actions. Imitating these role models can save plenty of time and effort. It is particularly important for people who are recovering from an addiction to have good role models. This will allow them to follow a path to success that has already been well-trodden and tested. Early recovery can be particularly treacherous, so it makes sense to follow in the footsteps of those who have successfully navigated this path previously. Role models defined. A role model is any individual whose behavior 
in a particular role is copied by other people. The most common reason why people will copy such behavior is that they believe that it will benefit them in some way. They wish to be more like the person they are trying to imitate. A good role model in recovery would be an individual who has built a successful life away from addiction. Is it possible for role models to have a good or bad influence? Yep. This is why celebrities and athletes are heavily criticized when they indulge in negative behaviors such as taking drugs. The worry is that their fans might be encouraged to copy such behavior. Now, just in regards to that last statement, that never applied to me because I never, ever, ever, ever looked up the celebrities and athletes as role models because you don't know those people. You don't see them on a day-to-day basis to see what they do in their day-to-day lives. So, uh, you know, it just it absolutely never occurred to me to have them as a role model. Um, my first role models obviously were my parents. <clears throat> now, that's different than, you know, if you're, you know, a kid or even an adult, you know, and, you know, you're into sports or whatever, and that you don't have sports, quote-unquote, idols, right? Your basketball idol or your football idol, so on and so forth. doesn't mean that you're a role model. I define it as like your favorite basketball player, your favorite football player, your favorite baseball, your favorite actor, favorite actress, things of that nature. Sure. But role, but role model, I've never subscribed to that argument that athletes and celebrities are role models. Like hell they are. They're not role models. Unless you happen to know them kind of personally and, and they're worth, you know, following and looking up to. Other than that, what is the reason why we look up to them? I mean, what's the reason why in terms of modeling your life or something that you're doing, not not sports-related, I'm saying, it's different if you're taking that same path and you try and follow what they may have talked about that they did to get to where they are in, in that particular sport. I'm just talking about everyday life. Right. How, how, would you, how would you know what their everyday life is? You know what I'm saying? You only see what what they – you know, do on the court and what they might sound like or act like in interviews and so on and so forth. You don't know how they are on a day-to-day basis. Sure. So enough on that one. But um, 150 years ago when I was in treatment, um, yeah, I mean, I remember as a, a, a new member in the house, looking up to um, other members who had hands on air quotes, you know, been around a while. And one of the things for me is that they may not necessarily have been people that I liked, you know, personally. Um, However, how they were going about their process and, um, how they were doing things, you know, in, within the treatment environment in terms of, you know, how tight they were with their rooms and their clothing and their, you know, just, you know, just the way they were going about their business. And, you know, you don't know what to do, so you have to look. And, you know, the person who I probably disliked the most in treatment was my big brother. Now, unfortunately, because he he left – um, prior to, you know, his treatment process concluding the way it should have, um, we never got an opportunity to 
for that relationship to come full circle, if you know what I mean. Because, okay. you know, back in the day, it was set up, uh, the big brother, big sister relationship to the new member, the younger member, was was set up to be um, adversarial at a certain point. We all knew, I mean, it's just human nature that after, I mean, and we kind of hoped for it to happen. We knew that at a certain point, that new member, I don't know if it was one week or two weeks after the fact, or maybe some might have held out for three or four weeks, but at a certain point, they were going to snap, and they were going to snap on their big brother or big sister, because they just had a, about had enough. Yeah. You're telling them what to do, where to be, you know, and all that stuff. Um, but it's supposed to happen. It's just a natural progression. And then once you snap and you take them to group and, you know, you just let, let your feelings out, eventually it's going to come full circle and you should end up being, you know, good friends or associates or acquaintances throughout the treatment process. I didn't get that opportunity because he split. But, wow, I couldn't stand him after two weeks because he was, um, he was on point. This is how you need to fold your clothes. This is how you need to make your bed. This is how you do hospital corners. And if your, fl- your clothes weren't folded correctly and your host- if you couldn't bounce that quarter off that mattress, off that bedspread, your hospital corners weren't done properly. And he made you do it again and again and again. Well, after two weeks, you about had enough of that nonsense. <laughs> but, <laughs> but when you talked about it being an organic process, and, and how I define organic is two ways, meaning that it's not something that's forced. It comes naturally. Um, it's not something you announce. It's just something that you just do, right? And also, you may not always be aware of it until after the fact. And what I mean by that is during the process, if someone would have said to me, you know, you know, who are your role models? And let's say they made some – threw out some names or suggestions and they might have said, what about your big brother? I would have said, oh, what, are you crazy? That's what I would have said while I was in the process. After the fact, I can look back and say, of course he was because after the fact, it was what he taught me is what I used. And filtered it down the line, if you follow what I'm saying. It's how he taught me to roll the clothes and, you know, make the bed and, you know, keep your room tight and all that stuff. That's how I taught people behind me. The same exact way that he taught me. A couple of different ways, even without knowing it, that someone um, could be a role model to you. Sometimes you're not even aware of it. Alcoholics Anonymous has a saying. It's not one. It's not one of their more, most popular sayings, but uh, it is. It is one of their sayings, and it's uh, about sticking with the winners. And what they mean is that you spend time with people who have built a successful recovery, and you can not only learn a great deal from people who've built a successful recovery, but it can also help motivate you. Because you're looking at them and you see that, hey, you know, they've done it. Um, I can do that. Positive role models can increase the effectiveness of other people. They are living proof of what it's possible to achieve in a life away from alcohol and drugs. And this helps people to, or the individuals, to think. So can I. 
Now, I don't know about you, Mr. Producer, but I remember sitting in the dining room among my 249 brothers and sisters, and a particular senior counselor, his name was Alfonso Della Barrera, who we did not like. And the reason we didn't like him, not because there was anything personal about him to dislike, but we knew every time that we were sitting in the dining room and we were focused up, that means we were preparing for an announcement or preparing for, you know, to be directed off into a seminar or a group or what have you, and we've come together as a family to be formally dispersed. If Alfonso came down to address the family, one or two things were happening. We were either going into a tight house (laughs) (laughs) or all privileges were being pulled. It seemed like he was the one assigned with the task of, of announcing that to the family. So it, it was absolute dread if he walked through the double dining room doors <laughs> while we were all sitting there. Because it was like, oh, my God. Here we go. Here we go. <clears throat> and automatically your mind just went to – if you had a request in a pass in for the weekend, you knew it was automatically pulled. Or if you didn't, you were just going to wonder, okay, how long is this going to last? One week, two weeks, three weeks, how long? But Alfonso used to frequently say this in front of the family. He would say, out of all of you, ten of you may make it. Mm-hmm. Now, that's out of 250 people. He would say only ten. And I remember me looking around the room, you know, as I'm looking around the room, I'm thinking to myself, well, I know I'm, I'm going to be one of those ten. Who else is going to be one of those ten? That's just a thought that came into my mind. But I'll never forget it when he used to say that. <clears throat> and what it caused me to do is sometimes when I would sit with the family, I would ask the question of, as we sit here today, at this moment in time, not yesterday, not tomorrow, but right now, how many of you think that you're not going to make it? And I'll always be surprised at the number of hands that go up. Mm-hmm. It absolutely made his, when he said only 10 of you, make sense to me. Because you have to figure into that equation how many people don't think they're going to make it. And it's an overwhelming majority. And that's where the work lies as a counselor, is trying to get more people over to that 10, if you will. So it's more than actually 10 to believe that they can make it and they will make it. And by the way, that's the answer to the question of what's the hardest thing to do as a counselor is to convince another human being that they can make it. Very true. They can succeed at this. They can do it. Now, I'm just speaking about me, my experience. I've had a number of role models uh, and I'll even use throw in there mentors in that in that um, category. And and the first one that I had um, as a, a professional, as a staff person, obviously was my first director, Eddie Hill. And the reason why I bring him up is because for you, the individual, not anybody else, just you. Who you choose as your positive role models that you're going to model yourself after or take things from to incorporate into your own, you know, 
thing and way of doing things may not be the person that other people would choose. And it's actually irrelevant who other people will choose. It's only relevant who you choose and why you've decided to choose them. And it doesn't even matter if you are not able to articulate why you've chosen them. Because to me, again, this speaks to kind of the organic nature of it, is that you may not be be able to explain in detail why you've chosen this person, but there's just something in you that knows. You see something that you want to model. It's positive, and you want to model yourself after that. Well, Eddie Hill wasn't very well liked. He was abrasive. He was brash. Um, you know, he was one of the, you know, he came into Daytop when he was 18 years old in the early 60s. So at, at, at my point in time, when he was the director at Swan Lake, he was in his early 40s. And it was also believed, turns out to be kind of true, that he was kind of one of, you know, you know, one of the Monsignor's favorites, which didn't okay. go over well, which didn't go over well, which is one of the reasons why he wasn't liked. It didn't go over well with his peers, some of whom were Daytop executives. Okay. Okay. Eddie had an, uh, a couple two or three, let's call it, so it'd be a couple or a few, um, you know, slip-ups along the way. Um, and, and the slip-ups I didn't know about, by the way, until long after I became a staff person and, and got to know him more personally. Um, but, yeah, he wasn't very well-liked. Um, and... To me personally, I'm saying he was abrasive, he was brash, etc. To me, he wasn't that way because that manner of him being had never had that kind of a negative impact on me. So I didn't look at it as being brash or abrasive. I spent most of my time in his staff meetings holding my salt and pepper notebook up a little high to hide my mouth because I couldn't, almost couldn't stop from laughing. Where some people were scared to death. I can't tell you why he didn't impact me the way he impacted numerous other people in terms of them either not liking him, being afraid of him, and so on and so forth. It just never hit me that way. Sometimes I think it may be that somehow I figured out that he was not who he you know he was the real him was not who he presented on, on, on as a as the director. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, it's like yeah, that he be, it was uh he played a role because he had to play a specific role, the show, exactly. if you will. Right, exactly. But that's not who he was behind the scenes. Yeah, like if you if you had a a dinner with him on a Friday night or something right. outside of that environment, you'd get a different vibe. Exactly, exactly. So now, again, I didn't get to know him personally till long after I was a staff person. So. As a resident and as a staff trainee and as a, young, a new and young staff person, you know, it was a professional relationship and so on and so forth. But, again, something about him let, let me know that, okay, I'm not, falling, I'm not falling for this act, okay? I know that's not who he is. 
I can't point to though what what gave me that clue, at least not off the top of my head. So not everybody's going to. So if I would have shared or announced that, hey, you know, you know, especially in the early days that, yeah, you know, Eddie Hill's my role model. That's who I kind of model myself after in terms of how he goes about his business, how, you know, on point and tight he is with, you know, ensuring his facility is up to, you know, it reflects the utmost in pride and quality, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, those facets, you know, I want to watch and and use um, in my own way. Um, but maybe only one or two other people would 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 say say that that they would use him as their um, role model. So not everyone. Sometimes the role model choices that someone makes, the positive role models, are not always obvious to everybody else. So it's it's really an individual thing. Um, and as long as the person. You know, there are positive aspects of the person. That's what draws draws you to them. That's all that matters. <clears throat> now, the reality, of course, is that um, many, 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 many people pick poor role models or role models that are, you know, give off negative, you know, role modeling, so to speak. And I'm not necessarily talking about the obvious, meaning. <laughs> you know, people who follow behind people who are doing bad things or wrong things or things they shouldn't be involved in type of things. That's obvious. <clears throat> because and I don't I'm only speaking for myself, Mr. Producer, you can speak for yourself, but because people don't make public pronouncements as a just as a matter of being of that, you know, hey, this is my role model and so on and so forth, um you we can't always detect and find out that and then be able to intervene and say, hey, you know what, you shouldn't be following that person, and here's why. It's not until someone says something um, that people may get an opportunity to offer their opinion on it. And then the person can choose to articulate why that person's role model to them or not. If they choose not to, there's nothing nothing to be said or done, to be honest. If they choose to, then there may be something to be said or done, depending on who it is and what they say. But it is possible for people to make bad choices. They do it all the time. Um, they don't call it <laughs> – the only thing is I don't think we, we call it um, negative role models. Uh, we probably call it people, someone succumbing to negative peer pressure, you know, by not one, but a one and or more persons that contributed to them making bad decisions. But it's certainly um, – Highly possible and highly frequent. Let me read something real quick. The moment I said the word read, I realized I didn't have my you-know-what's in my hand, so one second. All right. Don't worry, your time is coming. Okay. The dangers of bad role models in early recovery, in early recovery, I guess we could say, for the sake of Rochon recovery, if we're talking about the first trimester. Yep. Spending time with people who have a strong recovery record is not the only point of advice here. It is also important to avoid negative role models. There are people who no longer drink alcohol or take drugs, but have still failed. Listen up here. 
but have still failed to find happiness in recovery. Such individuals can be full of negative thinking and resentment. They have developed a condition known, and we know it well, as the dry drunk syndrome. It can be dangerous for newly sober people to spend too much time with these negative types. They not only offer bad advice, but their negativity can be infectious. Those who are ready to relapse may want to take other people down with them. Your thoughts on that, Mr. Producer? Uh, I, I, well, I absolutely agree with the idea that it is important to avoid negative role models. Um, the old, I wouldn't even say that this is a cliche necessarily for the recovery field, rather just a saying that we hear in life in general, uh, misery loves company. And um, we definitely know that that is very applicable when it comes to using, um, you know, it, it can't be much fun or we would imagine it can't be much fun in an environment like this to uh, get high by yourself. So if you can find somebody who's on that same path, the path of negativity or someone who still wants to use, uh, who kind of echoes your sentiment, so to speak, um, you know, it's going to uh, be beneficial to you in some way because you'll have a, a buddy who is uh, on the same level that you're on. Um, but I think it's important also to note in the addition to, and, you know, I was going to hold out to see if you were going to mention this because it's very well uh, possible that you were going to mention it. But also not something that I would define as a negative role model, but say having a having a good positive role model who um, – who ends up falling off, who ends up relapsing, and not because they had reservations or because that was their plan the entire way, but someone who was, you know, genuinely invested in their recovery and suffered a relapse like many people do. Um, and when something like that happens to an individual that you looked up to or that, you know, was, was your role model, at least through your own eyes, um, it can be a, a dangerous kind of slippery slope because it can have you questioning Oh man, you know, if this guy who had X amount of time in the program or X amount of clean time under his belt and who, at least from my perspective, had it all together, uh, suffered a relapse, then, you know, I stand no chance. And um, I know that that is a common feeling uh, in the environment. I've heard people express that uh, to me actually just the other day, maybe just, uh, just last week. Um, you know, there was a, a client of ours that we had who many, many people looked up to, um, who many, many people perceived uh, had their stuff together um, and was kind of like a, a walking poster child, if you will, for what recovery was about and what completing this program the right way was about. And as a result, you know, many, many people looked up to this individual and, and wanted to follow in their footsteps well, now this individual finished the program, went out, and has suffered a, a relatively serious setback and is not in a very good spot right now. And I actually had a client who we currently have come up to me and, and kind of voice the question that, like, you know what, I'm scared now uh, because I'm thinking the same thing's going to happen to me because I looked up to this guy, and in, in my world he had it more together than even I do. And if, and if this is his result now, uh, I stand no chance. And um, 
So that can be, you know, that may not be under the category you're talking about negative role model, and maybe you were going to bring up this scenario later on. In fact, uh, just so the audience gets a little insight, um, the host will usually text me a couple days before, the night before, what the topic of the show is going to be. And when you went ahead and shot me the text stating we were going to talk about uh, the role of the role model, um, this story came to my head specifically because I said, you know what, uh, obviously you can talk about it from many angles and cover it from many angles, but this is kind of one nuance to the role model that when somebody picks a, a good role model or what any staff might say, hey, this is someone you can role model yourself after, and that individual suffers a setback, can also create a, a whirlwind in its own right. Well stated. I think what you described absolutely comes under the the aspect of a role model who we've all, like you, the person you described the perfect example, we've all seen it, we've all experienced it in our, in our, in our professional um, uh, life, and that particular type of role model is where we would obviously uh, state that they have modeled everything that they have stated that was positive and so on and so forth remains the same meaning that it doesn't take anything away from what they were doing and what they were stating if if you can't punch a hole in anything that they did until the setback anything they said until the setback then those things still stand now Obviously, whether or not the person, the person, uh, quote-unquote, in, in the time when they needed to do it most, took their own advice, may, they may not have. But that's part of being human. Right. That's part of the recovery process. Oh, my goodness. You know I'm with a dog, so dogs will be dogs. And I can't, I can't get mad at her because folded on top of my briefcase, and I said, okay, let me not forget to uh, grab this before the show starts. And did I forget? Absolutely. Did I grab it? I sure didn't. And what did she do? She wants to read it. I have not taught you how to read yet. Stop. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> yes, that is, that is a <clears throat> category, excuse me, <clears throat> onto itself. Excuse me. Because because that is real, that happens, and and the reality is no, we don't discount uh, a person who has been doing their thing, and people have been looking up to them and so on and so forth. Because we certainly don't turn to the people and say, forget everything that they said, um, don't listen to them. <clears throat> they didn't do it the correct way. No, we don't say that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> To me, there's a difference between that person and the person whose agenda and whose behavior, which has spoken for them, has been nothing but, I'm really not into this recovery thing, so I'm going to do whatever I can to make everyone else miserable, including myself. Absolutely. And, 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 and take other people down with me. So that's one person, and that person sits over here, and then you have the other person who's, who, like you said, is – to the best of their knowledge, you're invested in recovery, trying to do the right thing, and get sideswiped with something. And by the way, that something could easily be um, um, 
progressing through the treatment experience and and getting to a space that they you know they, they look around and they're like oh wow here I am and they panic they panic <clears throat> now just a small little sidebar here real quick when something like that happens and people are impacted because of who the person was, you know, what they were doing, the impact that they had, and the people that were looking up to them, other residents, so on and so forth. Yeah, you do get from some that response about, you know, damn, <laughs> they, they appear to have all this stuff together, all their ducks in a row. Look what happened to them. Right. By the, by the way, I'm guessing that this person that you're referring to, um, were, were they already in – the, their their outpatient phase, or they just got to outpatient and had a relapse. Uh, they were maybe one one month ish, give or take, into their outpatient phase. Okay. So but yeah, it didn't happen like uh, you know, I'm leaving Friday night. Let me let me pack my stuff so I can be ready for my ride Saturday morning, and uh, the joint was lit, so to speak. Right. So, and we're going to touch on it a little bit here, but one of the things we have to be very careful of and and, and really um, speak to when someone speaks about their concern for, for their ability to, to succeed because someone else that they thought had all their stuff together and was going to do it, you know, had a relapse. <clears throat> and the the obvious thing is obviously whether or not we can actually – communicate this in a way that they are open to it is that what happens to one has nothing to do with another. So what, what this person experienced doesn't mean that I'm going to experience that. Now, obviously if you um, take, if you claim that and own it as a, as it, as if it's your experience, then it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. So it, it takes some work to really move someone off of that spot and, and, and show them that what one person's experience is has nothing to do with another person's experience because their circumstance is individual, it's unique, and they have to speak to what transpired in their life that led them to, to, to that result. Um, it has no bearing that that's going to be your experience and your result. But it's hard. It's hard to move somebody off that spot, especially if they that person was their role model, and they and we're gonna like I said we're gonna talk about that in a minute. And they were invested in them in a way that they should not have been, meaning that they were treating them more than a role model. Okay. Okay. So. All right, I'm sure you all can hear her in the background. So let me touch on that. Where, where are we at with time, sir? Are we near the top of the hour? Uh, yeah, I mean, you got about okay, got five, five-ish okay. minutes. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to go out of order here since we're on that subject. So the danger of putting role models on pedestals. One of the potential dangers of putting too much faith in role models is that it can lead to disappointment. All humans are fallible. 
but it can come as a shock when a role model falls from grace. Those who are in early recovery can be traumatized if someone they admire relapses back to addiction. They may even be tempted to follow their own hero back into a life of alcohol and drugs. That is why it is so important to have realistic expectations of role models. Sometimes people can put on a good show for the outside world, even though things are not going that well. Just because a role model makes a mistake does not mean that the path they were following was a wrong one, speaking to your point. It just means, it just means that they lost their way. And that's something that we, tr- we can try to impart to the persons that are you know, significantly affected by the person uh, you know, going through what they went through, if you know what I mean. Are you there, Mr. Producer? Yes, sir. <laughs> I, I know it sounds like there's a fight going on, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. It's, uh, we, uh, it's, uh, you, you pre-warned us, and it, it's no. probably not as bad on our end as it, as no. it may be on your end. She got this look on her face like it was time to play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she got down in her stance. <clears throat> it was like... Oh no! All right. So yeah, I think that speaks to a little bit about what you were talking about. Um, in a nutshell, we have to be careful of putting our role models on pedestals because they're just, they're human beings. So it doesn't mean that they're not going to make mistakes or or bad decisions. Um, and simultaneously, it doesn't mean that what they were saying or modeling at the time that they did was wrong. So you got to know what to what to take and what to leave. And, and make space for um, human, at least uh, mentally and emotionally, may allow space for people to be human. And this way you're not setting yourself up for disappointment when they show their humanness. And their humanness yep. might come out, come out in, in, in ways like this. So I got one more thing. That's how to benefit from positive role models in recovery. So there, so I'm going to list some of the ways that having good role models is, is beneficial. So role models will be able to offer sound advice about how to make a successful life in recovery. These are people who are talk, talking from experience and not just uh, mouthing platitudes, although it could be both. <laughs> These individuals are glasses again. Got to get used to them. These individuals are positive about life away from addiction. Such positivity can be contagious. Firing to see that people can build a great life away from alcohol and drugs. Those who are struggling in recovery can gain a great deal of hope by spending time with other people who are finding success. Rubs off on you. You can pick their brain. You can use them as a role model. Those people who are doing well in their own recovery will usually be grateful for this. They often want to give something back. Hmm, you can't keep it unless you give it away. Interesting. 
They want to give something back by helping other people who are finding things difficult. These role models can be an invaluable resource when the going gets tough. And in closing, a role model will be able to set a good example in many areas of life. Now, that last one kind of takes it out of the treatment realm, obviously, because in the treatment environment, we only know what we see of the person on a day-to-day basis. Um, We don't know, you know, when they leave and when they go home and how they interact with their family and all of that stuff. We don't know that. But that's not the reason from a recovery aspect why you're choosing them to be a role model. And it doesn't mean that you can't, in time, learn and you know, learn this information in terms of how they interact with their family, and, and is it something that you want to model, and so on and so forth. You may not want to model it; you want to do your own thing. But role models are important; they are necessary. Um, I've never met anyone who didn't have one, or plural, role models. Um, And I don't think we talk about them enough. So I'll leave it at that. I like it. I think it's it's well stated. The the role model is incredibly important uh, in in the treatment realm. And like you said, even if escaping the treatment realm in the little bit – you know, in life in general. Um, But yeah, man, somebody like you said, and maybe they're just talking too, but somebody who, who at least has some, some ground to stand on in regards to what they're talking about, right? Somebody who's, who's walked it before and talked it before. And I think, like you said, not, um, I think the, the term dehumanizing has like a negative connotation, but not, not making them, anything more than human or putting them on a pedestal, kind of like you said, is a very crucial element because that's kind of like what I mentioned to the client who had brought up to me at the time, you know, concerns about this individual relapsing and um, whether or not they could make it. And something I, I told the client was, you know, although it's unfortunate that we've got, you know, a brother down right now, so to speak, I said, um, that doesn't invalidate any of the work he did, which is something that you mentioned. And more importantly, it doesn't invalidate any of the work that you did. However, he may have inspired you or gotten you to consider other things. I said at at the very end of the day, don't allow it to be any more complex than it is. Relapsing or staying clean is a decision. It's not out of your control. So just because there's somebody that you looked up to um, who who was doing well, who has fallen on hard times, a choice was made somewhere along the line to, you know, that took he or she to where he or she currently is, and uh, you don't have to make the same choice. You know, don't don't allow it to invalidate all the work that you've done that, that has gotten you to where you're at today. And so that, that resonated with the client a little bit too. But, um, no, nah, I think it's a great topic. I think you're right. It's funny, actually, when you had sent me that text, kind of feel like, you know, after three years or X amount of years, there are only so many topics, um, and so you recycle them. You, you start to talk about topics again for maybe people who weren't listening two or three years ago, 
And just like you stated at the end there, that you don't believe role models are spoken enough about, I'm not sure that uh, we've ever done a show specifically on role models, although we may have mentioned them, you know, through the trimesters of treatment and in other episodes. Uh, this is definitely, I believe, the first episode dedicated to role models outright, and I think it, it was a very important episode to have. Well stated, and I think uh, you should uh, print those on the flyers and drop 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 ship them to all the facilities in the local area. <clears throat> yes. But let me comment before we uh, go past the top of the you know take our break <clears throat> about uh, that what you said about um, the the topics. One of the things I realized is that um, no, and we we actually haven't done a show on role models. This is the first one, but one of the things I realized because I go and I listen to the shows, obviously, but I listen to them with a critical. I'm not listening to them for entertainment purposes. I'm listening to them for a critical listen. And yeah. like for example, there was one show I'm not going to name it because we're going to be doing it over that I listened to that we did in 2015, and I was like, damn, we left a lot of stuff <laughs> on the table. On the table that we didn't bring up. And the reason I was listening to that specific show is because I had referred um, some people to that show because there was some issues in regard to that topic that they could benefit from. But I decided to go home and listen to that show myself just to make sure that what was on there was going to be beneficial. And I don't think they would ever know what I experienced listening to it. In terms of thinking, wait a second, we could have said this, we could have talked about this, 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 and this, okay, um, to make it even better. But that, what that allows is that I realize that, well, it's impossible to cover the topic in all of its, you know, parameters in an hour, 45 minutes, whatever it is that we spend on it. Um, so we listen to it over and figure out where we can t- touch on areas that we didn't touch on. Yeah. So... All right, I'm done. I'm done with the first half. <laughs> All right, perfect. Well said. Well, we do see we have some folks on hold patiently awaiting the recovery support time segment of our show. Uh, I guess we do hope that you've enjoyed the topic so far and that you've gotten something out of the listening. We are indeed going to take a quick music break, and on the other side we will get to our recovery support time segment. Come on, baby, don't say me. 
Coming up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. Just, you know, 
verbal and mental disciplinarian. He took it upon himself to make sure that I was not getting into any trouble and that I was where I needed to be in terms of location and that I was not putting myself in certain situations and so on and so forth. Summer of 1980, so that summer I turned 16. And it was coming up on July 4th. So FYI, we always, the summer for us starts actually on the first day of summer back then. And fireworks were not allowed where we lived in the the complex, but obviously they were fireworks. And it got, it, it always gets to a point in the night where, you know, the people are out just enjoying themselves, having a good time, you know, enjoying fireworks responsibly, even though you're not supposed to have them where it crosses over to from those people to troublemakers. Okay. Keep in mind, I was only 16. And we were in a park which neighbors my building, so my, my mother and parents, myself, could look out from our kitchen window and bedroom window and see the park. And I was in that park. We were just hanging out. It was dark out, and there were no lights out, et cetera. And he was walking past on the walkway, going towards the mall and he spotted us in the park even though it was dark it was moonlight so he could make us out that it was me and my boys hanging out and all he did was he looked over there and he looked down at his wrist and just pointed right and just kept on walking I knew he was only talking to me so we're just still you know doing our thing and I noticed him on the way back walking back towards the circle and he enters the park just on the walkway and he starts looking over there he just looks over there and I know he's looking dead at me he looks at me he just holds his head in that position for maybe four or five steps and then just turns I could see him shake his head like there's a little quick shake and just keeps on walking and he goes and sits down at a bench maybe 50 yards away from where we're sitting inside the park. We then get up and we start walking towards the main circle and we have to pass him on the way there because he's sitting down at a bench that's right at the end of the walkway. So I got, I have to pass him in order to get to where we're going. I'm walking past him. Remember, I'm 16. I'm hanging with my boys. And he says, as I'm walking past, you better get yourself upstairs. Now, I keep on saying, remember, I'm 16. I don't want to be showed up in front of my boys or anything like that. That's all he said. He didn't make a scene. That's all he said. You better get yourself upstairs. Now, all my boys are wondering, who the the hell is he talking to? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we all know. Everybody knows who he is, but they're like, who the hell is he talking to? He's nobody's father. I knew he was talking to me. I knew he was talking to me. So we continue. Now, I have a choice right at that moment. As we're walking, I can break off from them and go through the side door of my building or continue walking and enter from the front. I decided to continue walking and enter from the front. That did not make him very happy. So I go through the front. We hang out for a little few more minutes, and I go in the building and go upstairs. Now, it may be 30 minutes later. I'm chilling in my room, and one of my favorite pastimes in my room because my room is a room that you can look down and see the park. I sit, sit by my window and just look out the window. And I can see people walking by, so on and so forth. And people who know me can look up 
and, you know, we could do hand signals, you know, because they know I'm always sitting in that window looking out the window. Yeah. He's now walking back towards the mall. As I'm looking out the window, by the way, I live on the 12th floor. I'm not on the second or third floor. I'm on the 12th floor. He's now walking past to go back towards the mall. And as he's walking past, he looks up there, and he knows I'm in the window, and he points at me. He points at me and starts talking. He says, you, you better be up there. I'm like, ain't that a B? Ain't that something? <laughs> Meanwhile, everybody else is still downstairs. Because it's only like, remember, this is July 4th. It's only like 1 o'clock in the morning. And you know, July 4th, it might be good till maybe 2 or 3 in the circle to hang out. Everybody's still out. But what he knew was that threshold time from when it turns from okay and safe fun to troublemakers. Okay. All right. And he wanted me he wanted me out of there once that threshold passed. And I listened. I went up there. He wasn't none too he wasn't very happy that I didn't go through the side door that I walked all the way around to the front of the building. And stood right. there for maybe five, ten minutes and then went inside, went upstairs. He wasn't too happy about that. So here's the point of my story. As I got older, 18, 19, 20, he, he and I, we, you know, all of us used to play ball in the park and whatnot. I didn't have to say a word to him. He started treating me differently as I got older. The relationship evolved. And so when I became 18 and whatnot, he didn't treat me like I was 15 and 16. He treated me like I was an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, and so on and so forth. And when I was about 20, 20 years old, I brought that back up to him, what happened four years ago, four summers ago. He got a good laugh out of that. But he did tell me something very important. Now, I didn't say to him he was my role model because, again, you don't, these things are organic. But I was smart enough to realize that, number one, he was looking out for me. Regardless of what I felt at that moment in time as a 16-year-old, he was looking out for me. Number two, he never willfully and purposely tried to, like, embarrass me, to, like, make himself look up here and me down here. He never did that, okay? But I was very curious about that particular night because that's one of the few times he actually said something, and I said, do you remember four summers ago when, on July 4th when I was hanging out in the park and you were walking by and you, you know, pointed to your watch and then you were walking by again and you, you, you just looked at me and he said, I remember it clearly. I said, what was that about? And it was the exact thing as I tell you here today. He says, you know what goes down, what went down, what used to happen at a, at a certain point in time. And, and, you know, a certain group of people just started going wild. You know, it's like when the clock strikes 12, you know, boom, this is what happens. And he says, I made a promise to your brother, made a promise to your mother. I didn't know this, by the way. He made a promise to your brother, promise to your mother, promise to your father that if I was out and about and I saw you, I was going to make sure nothing happened to you. So, and I was okay with it. And I was okay with it. <clears throat> and it wasn't until I got much older that I realized that... Even though he was older than he was older than older than me, and I per se didn't do the same thing to somebody somebody else because I kind of moved out of that neighborhood and so on and so forth. But unbeknownst to me, that once I turned seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, and twenty, I started to look up to him as a role model because of the way he handled himself, what he did for me, 
even though at that time it was unspoken, you know what I mean? You know, what he did for me. And I didn't see him doing that with anybody else, like none of my peers, so on and so forth. So I didn't know that he had this thing, you know, let's just call it a thing, where he told my brother verbally, you know, because um, you know, even though I have an older brother, my older brother didn't hang out where I hung out. So I didn't see him. And he didn't see me. So it wasn't like he was around to be, quote, unquote, that protective older brother. And not that I needed it anyway, but he just wasn't there. He hung out outside of the complex, which we didn't. The complex had everything that we needed. So we didn't have to leave. He never hung out inside the complex, whereas Big Ant stayed in the complex. Uh. So, and I didn't, I didn't know he mentioned that to my mother or father anyway. But it just made sense to me. Um, and I just found it kind of interesting how, unspoken again, that I looked up to him as a role model because of how he went about doing what he did. And I said, well, if I'm going to ever have that role with someone, that's exactly the way that I would do it. That's exactly the way that I would do it. And they would never know. And, and that's a, the beautiful way of doing it. They never know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And maybe until later when they grow up and they get older. Sure. So you never know where your role model, you know, how, how you might manifest a role model. <clears throat> now, unfortunately for me, and, I, and unfortunately for me, I don't have that many nephews because our, our family is dominated by, you know, nieces and whatnot. So I never got a chance to, you know, try try out my uh, my skills. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I didn't have I didn't have okay. any boys. Or, or I do have grandsons, so I might get an opportunity to try it out. That's right. Who knows? <clears throat> All right, I've talked long enough. What are we doing first? We've had our calls holding for a while. Do we want to go to the calls first before we do some next Yeah, part? yeah, let's go straight to the calls, huh? Okay. All right, who's been holding the longest here? Okay, let's go to, it looks like, Charles from the great San Francisco. Good evening, OCG Recovery Radio. All right, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, when will I know when I'm ready to leave my residential treatment program? That's a great question because the answer today is not the answer was not, is not the same answer as it was ten years ago. So today's answer may involve your input more than in years past. You know how do you where is your mind at? Where are you at? Where where's your emotions at, your thoughts at, where are you at mentally, and all of that stuff. Whereas, you know, a long time ago, um, we didn't care where you were at. You know, treatment programs, you know, traditionally, generally speaking, they didn't ask the opinion a lot of the persons in treatment. You know, it was just, you were going to be here for 12 months, and that was that whether you liked it or not. <clears throat> but today, the person that's in treatment has a lot more say in terms of you know, dictating how long they stay plugged into the treatment environment. Now, there is a catch-22 to that. The catch-22 to that is that more often than not, unless they seek input from their counselor 
okay? They may not be aware of some things that the counselor can help them to and make them, and make them aware of. So to answer your question specifically is nobody knows. Ultimately, the only person that knows is you. Because if you came to me and said, hey, when am I going to be leaving this environment that I'm in, I would automatically turn it back around and say, okay, well, why don't you tell me how you're doing? Where are you at with the things on your treatment plan that you've set out as goals that you wanted to accomplish? Where are you at with those things? You understand what I'm saying? Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay. So it's more driven, client-driven than it was in years past. And that's everybody, not just our program, but any program that you might be in or people may be in. That's where everyone's kind of migrated to. That's definitely what I've experienced uh, up to this point myself. Good. So, um, yeah, that it's uh, it's uh, it it seems to be describe or I would describe it almost just personalized. I mean, it just uh, you know they've done a great job about that. Um, I feel like the voice heard and, and they're addressing you know where I'm at. Uh, so definitely, um, it's been a great. Good. Good stuff. Okay. All right. All righty. Okay, thank you, thank sir. Thank you so much for your time. I right. appreciate All you right. uh, answering my uh, question. Okay. Good. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <clears throat> All righty. Let's see. Who do we have next? Let's go to Timothy from San Carlos. Welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? Good, good. How can we help you? So, how do I control my urges while in recovery? Which urges are these? Urges of abusing. When do these urges hit you? You know, uh, on my, on, when I have idle time. So, are you saying that all the time that you have idle time is are when the urges come, or do they come? Mostly, yeah. Okay. And do you have idle time? At various times throughout the day, or is it a specific time of the day when it hits you the most? Usually at night, between, you know, like 7 and midnight. Okay. And what what significance does 7 to midnight hold for you? Um... It's just it's just usually you know around that time is is the downtime of the day. Let me ask you this: Is there any connection? I'm not saying there is. I'm just asking: Is there any connection and any link to that time frame that that you spent a lot of time using during that time? Uh, I mean, I, I would use. All, all, all hours of the day. 
but a lot, yeah, a lot of time when I, I would be using, I would say about 60% of the time would be around that time. Okay. But you were a fair person. You were an equal opportunity user, so you didn't discriminate between 7 and 12. You said, whenever I have it and it's available, I'll use it. But right. I do want you to put some focus, not all, because like you said, it was only 60%, so that's fair. Some focus to, you know, whether or not the cravings coming primarily during that time, coupled with that right now, right in this moment in time, that that's when your, your downtime primarily is, along with, you know, 60% of the time when you were out there, you spent your time using during those hours of the day, okay, that there is a little bit of a connection to that. Uh, it and might also be because during that time when I was younger and when mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time with my father, who is now deceased. So from your perspective, that time frame also has, am I understanding, a negative connotation to it or um, positive connotation? Well, what, I mean, now it's negative because he's not here. Okay. But before, you know, my dad was a very positive role model in my life. Okay. So very maybe good. I'm running from the negative that is now. Right. To try and make a positive. I don't know. So here's the first thing we're going to do. From this point on forward, okay, one thing you are never going to, what you are never going to allow, so become consciously aware of what you're saying. Don't allow yourself to say the words, I don't know. Okay. Okay. Because most people, if they themselves dig deeper or someone helps them dig deeper, they can come to the answer. So the answer is in them. Okay? But it's whether or not they can bring it forth or they can, someone can help them bring it forth. That's the question. So what we don't want to do is we don't want to reinforce it by saying, I don't know. Those are the last words we want to go to. Right. But what you can, but what you can do, what you can do is look at to the best that you can, disrupting the current pattern. Because right now is if you experience your, those urges between 7 and 12, and you say, well, during that time is when I have you know, the most downtime, so that's when I kind of experience it the most. What you want to look at is, okay, what am I doing with, while I'm experiencing that downtime? Am I just sitting around doing nothing, or am I doing something that's active, that's working my mind, that, that has me interested you know, what exactly am I doing during that time? Right. And if you are early in recovery, it's very important that when you have quote-unquote downtime, and you do need downtime, you can't, you can't occupy your mind 24-7. The mind needs time to relax and rest. But if you are struggling during the downtime because that's when you get your urges, you might want to read. You might want to get involved in some sports. You might want to exercise. You want to do something to, you know, 
um, physically, if not mentally, occupy yourself so that you're not so focused on, quote-unquote, the urges. And what you will find out, what you will find out is that they will slowly dissipate, dissipate. So you have to change something, and it will change. Okay. Are you understanding me, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. You have to do something, and then you'll see, you'll see an impact over there. If you do nothing, you'll continue to experience the same thing. Okay. And it doesn't have to be, you know, a big, big change. You can just do a small, small things at a time, and and experience, you know, oh, okay, that works a little bit. I don't, don't feel as much as long in terms of the urges. And when you see a little improvement, then you know, okay, let me just stay doing something like this um, and increase it, increase it, increase it. And before you know it, you won't experience the urges and you won't be paying attention to them because you'll be preoccupied. Right. Okay? And we'll, we'll really be interested in hearing back from you to see how you've progressed and if you've experienced anything different. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Mr. Producer? Yes, sir. So, I would say, and believe it or not, I don't think it comes up enough, and I'm not talking about on, on the radio show, but just in general in, in, in our program, I'm only speaking to our program, in the treatment environment, about the discussion about people who are experiencing cravings and urgings and so on and so forth. Sure, because I don't sure. Under, I, don't, I don't understand how it can't be um, more prevalent, huh? Ex- exactly. And that it's not, um, you know... I'm not saying it's not spoken to. I'm just saying that even with my interactions throughout the family and when we kind of talk together, I don't hear that, and I know it's there. I know people, especially, you know, you're new, you're less than 30 days. <clears throat> the The only caveat might be if there's someone has been in the jail for a few months and has come from the jail to the treatment environment directly. So they didn't experience any lapse of time outside in the real world. Um, so they've gone from one self-contained environment to another self-contained environment. But um, I don't know. I, I think still that it might it's, it would still be present to some degree because not all the time are, is is t- not all the time does time and distance deal with urges and cravings. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. All right. Let's get some time to go to some X Files. How are we doing on time, sir? Oh, we're doing good. We're doing good. We got about uh, ten to ten to twelve more minutes here. Okay. Uh, okay. Got to remember to put the glasses on, not strain the eyes. Andrea from South from San Francisco wants to know how do I manage to stay positive in an environment 
where I'm outnumbered and the poison is growing. That's about that's about as old a as old a fable as treatment programs in general, huh? Wow. <clears throat> well, I'll let you take that one, Mr. Producer. Oh boy, yeah, that's uh that is all let me say this. It's it's a rough situation to be in, but the solution is rather easy, and I will I will use an example that we talked about today on the show when it comes to role models and having a good role model who ends up slipping uh, or facing a setback, and I'll I will top it. The cherry on top, if you will, will be the host's famous elevator analogy. Mm-hmm. But uh, allow me to start with the example that was brought up in the show. We were talking about an individual who looked up to somebody and um, invested maybe a lot in that you know uh, relationship, invested a lot in this person's success and kind of looked at it as a mirror, right? Um, I agree with what this person is doing and the work that he or she has put in, and if they are successful, then I can certainly succeed and then when it um when it falls apart for that individual then the thought might be well i can't do it myself now i know that's a little different from being in an environment where you feel that there is poison present and uh the environment is becoming not conducive for your recovery but the the connection that i'm drawing here is my message to the client who said no i'm afraid i'm going to fail now because this individual has failed was you know what you it it comes down to a decision okay a it comes down to making a decision and nobody can make that decision for you nobody can take that decision away from you if you make a decision to do work on yourself to become a success to accomplish the goals that you personally or individually have set out to accomplish then nobody can get in your way um and so the work that you do counts even if nobody around you is doing work uh you know the work that you do is not discredited in any way everything that you choose to do and all the work you choose to do on yourself will stick Uh, i'll slide in an ocg unwritten philosophy right personal growth before vested status so when you're in an environment where you believe um poison is poison is present um, the co- maybe coordinators or the chain are dirty. Uh, no individuals there truly care about getting their lives together. Um, and these people carry some sort of status. Either they're older members, they've been there longer than you, they hold positions that are higher than you on the chain. Um, those statuses really don't mean a thing. And somebody taught me a very long time ago, and I love the saying, I use it to this day, that status doesn't mean a thing because it can be given and it can be taken away. Uh, but personal growth can never be taken away from you, and it can't be given to you either. It's something that you gain by yourself, and once you have it, you have it, regardless of what is happening around you in your life. And so that's the connection I'd like to lead you to there, is that if you choose to put in the work and you do everything you can to grow as an individual, that no matter how many people fall around you or what the environment is about, you are going to be able to keep that growth, which is going to get you where you want to go. Uh, and then lastly, 
and, and it's unfortunate, and I guess this would be contingent upon how much time you've actually spent in treatment. If you've been there for a very, very long time, several months, um, then maybe this is this will resonate with you a little more as opposed to if you're a younger member or haven't been there for very long. Um, but at the end of the day, the world doesn't change. And we live in a world where, where drugs and crimes and temptation is always one phone call or one block or one decision away. And until we have gained the strength within ourselves to say, you know what, I've made a decision that that's not the way I want to live anymore, uh, that then empowers you to live in a world where uh, one block away or one phone call away lies trouble and you're able to completely uh, walk past it or turn the other way or uh, make a different decision. And so... Uh, I always encourage clients, no matter what the feel of the environment or what your experience with other residents are, uh, everything can be a learning experience. And uh, this to you, if you make it through and decide you're still going to work on yourself no matter what individuals are doing around you, and it's doing so in an environment like you've described, one that is poisonous, uh, you're only going to come out stronger on the other end, and you'll be able to handle a world similar to that environment where you know, it is going to be in your face at some point, and you're going to have to be strong in the decision that you've made. Um, but all that said, I know it's a rough position to be in. Uh, it's definitely not ideal. It's typically not what somebody signs up for when they decide I'm going to go to an environment that tells me they, they've got what I need to change my life. And then you enter and you see, uh, you know, temptation and ugliness all around you. Uh, that's definitely not easy, but I would just encourage you to keep your head up and keep your eyes on the prize. Keep reminding yourself of why you signed up in the first place, and that was so that you could make changes for you uh, regardless of what individuals around you were doing. Would you mind telling Andrew what the elevator analogy is? <clears throat> oh, okay, sure. So I, I didn't say it specifically. I just referenced it, but the elevator analogy that the host uh, drops from time to time is that at some point in your recovery you need to be strong enough to where you can enter an elevator and say you're riding it to the top floor and you are in that elevator with a bunch of individuals who are getting high from the very moment you've entered until the moment you're going to exit on the top floor and you need to be able to be strong enough to have that not impact you where you're going to make a poor decision. You ride that elevator, you get off when your floor is up and you keep on moving like nothing has even happened. With the summary being obviously that you cannot allow what's going on around you to impact decisions that you make in terms of your recovery. You just can't. Right. And 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 we want people to be to get to that point, that level of strength in their recovery that like you said, they can be stuck in an elevator and it's not going to make them do something that they're not, that they don't want to do. Good stuff, Mr. Producer. Good stuff. Um, <clears throat> Andy from San Mateo has an interesting question. Why is it important to obtain treatment for your recovery? And the reason I find this question interesting is because I know people um, I know people who know people that, you know, needed 
to be in recovery. And they got in recovery, but it, they didn't get in it through treatment. Now, granted, they are few and far between. But um, to his question, why is it important to obtain treatment for your recovery? Um, in order, I, I'm going to just add some words into his sentence, his question. So I'm presuming that what he means is why is it important to obtain treatment in order to so that you can obtain, you know, recovery, get on that path to recovery. Um, that's how I'm going to presume his question to be. And most people who get to a point of where they become addicts versus, you know, recreational uses where at this moment in time their life is not designed around using drugs. When your life becomes designed around using drugs, you know, whether you want to admit it or you don't want to admit it, that's when you become an addict. So if your life has gotten to that point where you have designed your life around using and picking up drugs and whatnot, um, most of us, not all, but most of us, need assistance with getting out of that lifestyle. We we need help with getting out of that lifestyle because we've crossed over the threshold and spent a number of, you know, we spent significant amount of time on the other side of the threshold to the point that we cannot pull ourselves out of it by ourselves. We need assistance with pulling ourselves out of it. And so, that assistance can come in various forms, but even if it's a non-traditional form, uh, let me say a non-traditional traditional form, such as a 12-step meeting, just going to AA, NA, CA, et cetera, okay, um, that's still, even though it's not, um, let's call it, it's not formal treatment, that's still a form of treatment. Um, a lot of treatment programs have grew out of those concepts, 12-step concepts. So, but in any event, most of us need to go into a treatment program of some kind, uh, of some duration, 30 days or 30 months, whatever it may be, to assist us with um, arresting, no pun intended, arresting the lifestyle that we have been in and trying something different. And Going into a program, if it doesn't do anything, it does one thing, interrupts the pattern. Sometimes people can go to jail. That interrupts the pattern. Well, the difference between treatment and jail, obviously, is that for way more often than not, you're not getting any, you know, jail is not going to have you, you know, looking at your life, speaking to your life. You know, punching holes in your life, you, not somebody else, you punching holes in your own life for the purposes of trying to grow and become a better person and, 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 and be able to get this recovery thing. Jail's not going to do that, but jail will interrupt the pattern for, you know, for better or worse, it will interrupt the pattern. And that's what we want initially. We want to shock the pattern out of existence so that we can then get to work on you, the individual. And so even more so, we keep saying treatment, but let's be even more specific, you know, going into residential treatment because now you're going, you're, you're moving physically from one place into another place and living there and eating there and sleeping there, et cetera. And so you've really interrupted the, the pattern to say, unfortunately, that people who 
go into a residential environment or a residential type environment do not um, create um, different patterns that are still destructive. So I can't say 100% of the time that if you go into a residential treatment program that it's going to successfully interrupt the pattern. I can't say that. But um, that's why it's important to um, for those who have reached that stage of addiction that a treatment intervention is, is necessary. It's very important because that usually becomes the springboard onto that recovery highway, like, I used, like how I like to say. How are we doing on time, sir? Oh, I was going to say, that's, that's incredibly well said, and that takes us right up to it. You've got 20 seconds if you'd like uh, any uh, final send-offs. Nope. Not in 20 seconds. All right, there you have it. Well, folks, uh, as the host did explain at the beginning of the show, we know we haven't been on with you all as often as we typically are or definitely not as often as we'd like to. Um, but that said, hopefully as we start to get into a rhythm here and things start to tamper down, we can be uh, back with you guys at least more often than once a month. Uh, so we always have a goal, at least at this point, to shoot for every two weeks. And so with that said, uh, we hope to be back on in two weeks. And we wish everybody a, a safe and productive couple of weeks, fun couple of weekends, and we will chat with you again. Enjoy the weekend, everybody.
show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4pm Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCG CA and on Twitter at OCG CA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Slide through 